This is Abby, and you are listening to Upsound. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby, a planner and multi-studio in Kansas City, and today I'm joined by my dear friend, who I haven't seen in a little while, Aaron, <laughs> founder of Strong Towns. Welcome back. Hello. It's wonderful to see you. Um, yeah, it's you great look to see great. you. You look like you're living a good life. The studio there looks good. So yeah, it's wonderful. We we have not chatted for a while and I feel bad about that, but I've been I've been on the road a lot. Yeah, sounds like you've been pretty busy. What's a few places that you've been to recently? Oh, well last week I was on a bit of a retreat and I did that in Florida, which was okay. really hot and kind of crazy. We've been doing these community action labs. So I've been in Norman, Oklahoma and Medicine Hat in Alberta, Canada and Lake County, Florida. Those all kind of jump out to me as, as recent ones. This coming week, the whole team is going to San Diego. So we, we get everybody on the, the team together two, three times a year, just because we, we're all remote. And I have found, I mean, we, we did remote before remote was cool, right? Um, and I found a decade ago that the only way you can do remote well is if you also get together every now and then. Yeah. Um, you know, people have to people have to get to know each other and hang out. And there's some stuff that you can just do better as a group together. So we're doing that next week. And it's always like a jazz. Like it's always jazz. It's just like always super fun. So do you have any plans when you're in San Diego? Yeah. I mean, the first day we're working all day and then we're going to go to a Padres game in the evening. Um, the second day is always our discussion day. So that's the day where we have discussion groups and we're going to do the discussion groups at the zoo, at the San, the great San Diego Zoo. Yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah. And then um, that evening, like Norm scheduled something. Norm's like our master of fun. Uh, he scheduled <laughs> that is official title. Yeah, I think so. I think we're doing like some, like go out to eat, go do trivia, do like a ghost tour or something like that. And then the next day everybody's flying home except for a handful of people who are driving up with me to Anaheim. And I'm going to do a, a Disneyland tour for a, a handful of people who, who wanted to enjoy that as well. So um, yeah, I was waiting for the, the, Disney, <laughs> <laughs> the Disney plans. We always make everything very productive and very like, you know, we get a lot of work done, but we also enjoy ourselves. And that's part of the, that's part of the deal. Well, that's, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sure yeah. you can't wait. So <laughs> we are actually going to be covering an article today that is not too far from San Diego. This was published in the New York Times by Christopher Flavel and Jack Healy entitled Arizona Limits Construction Around Phoenix as Its Water Supply Dwindles. So this is a story that we have followed in a few previous episodes now because it has pretty significant implications. And this article is really an indication that state level officials in Arizona are getting more serious about water scarcity issues despite the still booming growth pressures that exist there. Some listeners 
might remember a story that we covered a little while ago where in rural areas of the Phoenix metro, many sprawling residential areas like the Rio Verde foothills have found it impossible to drill wells and are now facing challenges having their water delivered by truck, which many properties have been doing. And to kind of develop this story, the state has now determined that there is not enough water for already approved housing projects and will stop some developers from building if they rely too heavily on groundwater, which is essentially a finite resource. So Arizona's allocation of Colorado River water is also being decreased due to drought, which is making alternatives quite limited. The governor of Arizona has affirmed that the state won't necessarily run out of water immediately and entirely, but that, long-term that, management. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of not not the best way to start a statement, but basically saying that management is extremely critical now. Now, yeah. Now, <laughs> maybe twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, So basically, the Arizona Water Agency has given permission to build 80,000 housing lots, and they have yet to be built. And construction, for the most part, will move forward on these lots. And so the impacts to the overall, I guess, home building industry may not be seen immediately. But in the meantime, developers are going to be responding by turning to alternative sources of water if they exist, uh, including tribal water sources. This story really gives me like big short vibes. It seems like a huge problem that people are maybe not not feeling immediately, but certain industries are starting to look at it a little bit more seriously, um, maybe 20 years too late. Maybe eighty years too late, or eighty years too yeah. late. No, I'm I'm with you. Can I, so I read this article, and immediately my brain jumped to something else that I had read. That if you give me a little bit of leash here, might seem unrelated, but I think is is very related. Because all right, the, I will give you the, some flexibility here. Okay, because the the problem here in Phoenix is. It is not the water. The water is the trigger of the underlying problem. And the underlying problem is that the development pattern does not work, right? Like the, the development pattern of the Phoenix metro area, the development pattern of most of Southwestern United States is not viable in many dimensions. At Strong Towns, we work with the, the financial part, but I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of dimensions and the water is just like the, the, the thing that's going to break first that will cascade kind of everything else. There's a book that I, I read earlier this year called The End of the World is Just the Beginning, and it's about the end of globalization. Peter Zion wrote it. It's a tremendous, tremendous book. In, in there, he talked a little bit about the green energy movement. And one of the things he pointed out, and as soon as he said this, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is obvious. He said, when we look at deploying like solar panels as a method of producing green energy, as a way to get to like 100% green energy, there's a lot of desire in the northeast of the country to have uh, solar panels. And so what we see is that a lot of the solar panels that are being erected in the U.S. are being erected in the northeast of the country. There's fewer per capita percentage being erected in the southwest of the country, even though in the northeast of the country, 
solar panels don't work all that well. I mean, they're, 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 the days are shorter often in the, in the winter. You don't get as much sun during regular times. There's a lot more clouds. In the desert Southwest, solar works really, really, really well. If you're an environmentalist looking at this and you have a 10-year supply of, of solar coming online, and we can kind of look and say, here's the rate that we're going to be able to deploy solar panels. It certainly is not going to solve all the green energy, but it will be a portion of it. That portion would go a much, much greater distance if we deployed it in the desert Southwest as opposed to the Northeast. But we're not. We're deploying it in the Northeast. And you kind of look at it and go, well, gosh, the, the, the development pattern, the way we're deploying that seems wrong. It would be better if we could put, for instance, all of the dirty energy in the Northeast and all of the clean energy in the Southwest because we would net have a better outcome. Okay, I look at Phoenix and I'm like, the, the, the business development strategy of the Phoenix area has been the suburban Ponzi scheme. It has been grow, 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 grow. And you want to grow more and more and more and you need to grow more and more and more because that's the only way you keep up with everything that you promised you'd do the last decade or the decade before that and the decade before that. It's this need for accelerating levels of growth. All of a sudden now they're saying no more building permits, like no more growth. The obvious thing is like, oh, the water is the problem. But the reality is, is that the whole development pattern is financially insolvent, like it makes no sense. And, and the tragic thing is that if we had recognized up front that the water part, or I mean, we recognized it, but we actually made it operational, that the water part is the finite part that will break first, you actually could have had a major city in the desert Southwest. You actually could have done a, a lot of the development intensity that Phoenix has done, but you would have deployed it in a much different way. You would have actually used that water in a much different way. As it is today, we're just using this water in ways that are ridiculously unproductive. And, and you can say, okay, well, we're gonna conserve now, or we're gonna have uh, efforts to pull, it's already, you, you've already done it. You've already put the solar panels in the Northeast when the sun is in the Southwest. You already put the water out in the middle of nowhere instead of in a place where like your development pattern, pattern would be financially viable. So when you just say, we're going to stop adding new units, the whole thing falls apart. Like the whole thing does not work because you're stopping creating new Peters to rob to pay for all the Pauls that you have in your inventory. I think water is like the tip of the the tip of the iceberg here in terms. Of, I mean, they would love to have an iceberg at the tip of the uh, <laughs> of the problem here, you know. Right, and I I think you know it, it's like adding this intervention on top of all these other issues is certainly going to cause serious housing cost issues because you're essentially just stopping supply in an area that continues to boom which is, it's just going to be another impact. And the question of how much you're actually going to be able to affect water use through just stopping the residential development when you also have, I mean, you not only have immense amounts of sprawl in the Phoenix metro area, but you also have a lot of farmland and industry that are taking up massive amounts of water. I, I thought it was an interesting statistic that was included in this article saying that that the county uses 22 billion gallons of water a day, which is more than twice as much as New York City, despite having half as many people. So that is 
crazy. And just the impact to the existing sprawling areas and, and some of the, the areas that were kind of looked at and quoted in this article, were, it just kind of boggles my mind, actually, because it called out areas like Western Phoenix and um, the city of Queens Creek, which is to the east. And it, it cited the city's utility director saying that they're basically on a search for 9.8 billion gallons of water per year to support their growth projections. And it's like as if these growth projections are, it's like we need to meet these projections. But if you don't have water, then then it sounds like you just need to throw the projections out the window <laughs> at this point. Well, there, there was that line in the article that said, you know, this is going to housing affordability is going to take a real hit. And I'm like, mm, maybe not. Housing might become very affordable very quickly if there's no water. Right. Like I, I <laughs> like it might it might actually like spike and then at some point just. Oh, collapse. Yeah. Like, I mean, who is going to live? So remember a few months ago when we talked about Jackson, Mississippi? Yeah. And how Jackson, Mississippi is like this hot mess. And and there were all these different reasons why. And, you know, one of the reasons given was like, you know, the we've stolen all the money from the city and we send it out to the suburbs. And I we shouldn't relitigate that whole thing. But the the big insight to me that I thought was most operable is that Jackson, Mississippi has actually increased in size dramatically. They've increased in population. They've just increased in size more. They just have a development pattern that has outgrown its capacity to sustain itself. And so what you see is that Jackson, Mississippi can't maintain its own water system. The water system is out of scale. It's over-engineered. It's disproportionate to the population they have. Phoenix is entire system is out of proportion to the population they have. Everything, their roads, their sewer system, their water system, everything is out of proportion to the population they have. Everything is spread out. Everything has great distance between it. Everything is auto-oriented. Everything has massive parking lots that, that create no tax base and no revenue. This is a financial disaster. And the only way this works the only way you maintain that water system, the only way you maintain that road is to grow exponentially more. So when you listen to these guys say, like, our growth projections say we need, you know, gazillion four gallons of water. It's like we need to meet them. You're, you're like feeding them. You hear it. And, and like the average, per, you know, most people are there are hearing it and they're saying, oh, wow, that's really a big dissonance because the water is finite. Like you're actually not going to find that water. Here's the thing. They can't imagine that scenario because the growth has to happen or they can't even maintain the water system they have. That's the problem. And so, you know, you, you, you can look and say, well, the water is like the thing we got to go find because we got to keep growing. No, like the whole, the whole system, like all of this doesn't actually work. And the water is just the first part of it that is breaking for you. Yeah, in in a desert area. I mean, in it's a desert. Water should be expensive in a desert. I mean, I don't feel like that is like a controversial statement. You're in a freaking desert. Water should be really expensive there. Right. And I think one of the things that's kind of the elephant in the room is this article specifically focuses on residential development, but Industrial uses and agricultural uses are also using an incredible amount of water. I was reading into 
a little bit about agricultural uses. So their Department of Water Resources, based, so they, they cite that the agricultural sector accounts for around 72% of Arizona's total water use. And basically, there are a bunch of foreign-owned companies that are cultivating and shipping alfalfa to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. 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 I saw that too. It's yeah. illegal to, to grow in Saudi Arabia. So they're going to Phoenix and buying tons of land and cultivating it because there aren't really any, I guess, regulations against doing that. And it requires a ton of water. So there's this weird irony of that technically replacing a farm with a sprawling subdivision would be more water efficient. Not saying that's the right thing to do, it but would, I mean, it would be in many ways, right? It's like there there are all these other types of land uses that are not really being scrutinized for whatever reason. And I'm sure there are complicated legal reasons behind that, but that's, that's a huge issue that, that it's like growth and use of water growth and use of water in Arizona basically needs to be handled comprehensively. So in Saudi Arabia, they don't allow their wealthy people to buy up land and grow, you know, wheat, alfalfa, corn, the the kind of crops that you see here grown in, in large scale. You're not allowed to do that because that would require irrigation. And even if you were, were wealthy enough to purchase that irrigation and you can make it all cash flow, it, it would create shortages in other parts of the system that are, are critical, right? So you're not allowed to do it. And let's just say it, you're not allowed to grow that kind of food in a desert. In, in the U.S., we have said it is, our, it is our central policy to grow this in a desert. And the ludicrousness of uh, you know, Saudi Arabia doing it here and then shipping it over to Saudi Arabia, it kind of is offensive to people in a way like, you know, but what should really be offensive is the idea that we would um, charge a dollar for water when it costs $40, $80, $120 to produce that water, which is actually what it costs to produce water in a desert in the way that we use it now for agriculture. That is a really poor use of land. It's a poor use of resource. It's a poor use of the water. I know I've recommended this book before, but I'll recommend it again. There's a book called Cadillac Desert. I recommend it for everyone who comes to me and is like, the government should be doing A, B, and C to solve these big macro problems. And I'm like, go read Cadillac Desert. Because in that book, you have all of these earnest engineers who are out there Um, solving problems, right? The problem of the day in front of them. How do we grow this economy? How do we create a lot of food? How do we lower, you know, how do we stabilize agricultural markets? How do we allow people to live decent lives? How do we create, you know, growth in a city? It was, it was all this like genuinely, like we're trying to do morally good, righteous things using government policy to go out and dam up rivers and create these, you know, agricultural irrigation ways and subsidies and all this. Um, And you've got like insane things like growing sugar beets on the top of mountains and, you know, growing uh, alfalfa in a desert as a result. Cadillac Desert, the book, will make you sick to your stomach. And it'll make you sick to your stomach not just because of the ecosystems we've destroyed and the money that we've squandered, but at some point you will get a recognition 
that none of this works in the future and that all of these human beings we have kind of enticed to, you know, live in this thing under the guise that we've got it taken care of. Like the government's got it taken care of. We've built these things. Smart engineers are running this stuff. We know what we're doing. We are going to ruin a lot of lives because we had the hubris to think that this top-down way of building and, and giving, you know, these, these big government dam building programs, literally hundreds of billions of dollars was the way to go. It will sicken you to read this book. And, and after you're done reading it, recognize that exact same book could be written about sewer systems and water systems and roadway systems and highways and all this. Like it literally is the same mentality, the same mindset over and over and over Right. It's an industrial complex. It is. And by the it way, is. I pulled up your Audible account and I found it. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope this is not illegal for me to have given you my Audible account. But I, it brings me great joy that you and I have this relationship where now you're, you're, you're in my Audible account all the time. It makes me yeah, happy. Yeah. Amazon's going to hunt you down now. Uh, <laughs> by the way, the length is 27 hours and 58 minutes. So that's quite a... <laughs> It's not a modest read. It's, I, I described it to people. If, if you've ever read uh, Buried My Heart at Wounded Knee, which that sounds like a completely unrelated book. It is, it's about Native American tribes and basically like their exploitation and uh, genocide in, in, in the Western part of the U.S. Well, maybe not completely unrelated. No, not completely unrelated. About, yeah. <laughs> but I, the feeling I had reading Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee was the same feeling I had going through Cadillac Desert, which is you get one chapter and you get to the end of the chapter and you're like, oh my gosh, that was horrible. Like, please tell me that the next chapter is about the fallout of that and how we rectified that. And then the next chapter like takes the horror of the first one and like amps it up like 20%. The next encounter we had, we did this and you're like, oh my gosh, that is, that is horrible. And by the time you get like eight chapters in, you're like, please make it stop. Like make it stop. Like don't, no, no, really like defenseless women and children huddled under the American flag and we slaughter them. Like you have to be, you have to be joking. This is not possible. And then you read the next chapter and it's even worse. I realized that Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee is a little bit of, I mean, it, it is a propaganda book. So I recognize that there's uh, histories, but oh my gosh, Cadillac Desert had that same effect on me. I get through like chapter 34 and I'm like, it's, this book can't get any worse. And then chapter 35 is like a more insane thing that's done. And then you're like, okay, this program has to finally be ending. And oh no, it's getting authorized for another decade of like insane projects. It, it is. It was that same feeling of like, please, please let this stop. And then it just continued on and on and on. So, yeah. So that is advice to maybe listen to it and spurts, do a few chapters <laughs> a week. <laughs> yeah. Well, unless you, you know, you've got your, um, what's the anti-depression medication next to you? Yeah. Your, your yes. Prozac or whatever. Yeah, right. Exactly. Stock up. Um, yeah. Feel yeah. nothing. Uh, yeah. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, I think the last thing I wanted to talk a little bit about with regard to this article was just, and we've touched on it a little bit, was it, it's, this has made me think of kind of what people respond to, because I think people respond to issues they feel more directly, obviously population, migration trends, 
are uh, seemingly unaffected by what's going on here as people are flooding into the area, a, a lot of people from California. It seems like both residential development, uh, population growth, industry growth, agricultural use would respond more directly to, like you said, the cost of water. That is where people might actually shift the decisions that they're making rather than kind of these top-down attempts to, I mean, it feels like a -a whack-a-mole kind of approach. It's like, in this case, they're focusing on specifically housing development and residential development. And while that's part of the solution, there's all of these other aspects that really won't be impacted until way down the line. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Is there is there something that you think would be more effective for addressing these water scarcity issues? Because Phoenix is not the only place that will be affected in this way. I mean, the Denver metropolitan area is another area where water is limited. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the whole western part of the country, that that Intermountain West is all have these problems. So it's kind of amazing to me that we as Americans can look at a place like Venezuela or look at a place like Saudi Arabia and we can look at them and say, you are subsidizing oil. Iran is another one. You're subsidizing oil and gas prices for your residents. And as a result, look at your residents. They drive nine cars that get nine miles of the gallon. They use gas in like bizarre, weird ways. You are losing lots of money on the subsidy. You know, why don't you embrace market feedback and market forces and allow uh, a higher price to kind of dictate some efficiencies and all these things that would be really good for your backward, antiquated economy. And then we come to the United States and we look at things. And I mean, we, uh, literally, like we could go to every city and we could point to their water system and their sewer system and the massive subsidies involved in that and how nobody's paying anywhere close to what the actual cost of delivery service is. But, but in the desert, it's like even, I mean, the, the, the margin is even grosser, right? Like it's, it's, it's way, and somehow we look at Venezuela or Iran or Saudi Arabia as like defective cultures and not just as humans, because we are also doing the same thing. And we are also human. And we also have this like story and narrative that we've told ourselves about why we're different and why this makes sense and why we have to do this and why it will be okay in the future and why, you know, there, there really will be no consequences for this. I, th- I think you shared the article with me about Wall Street buying up land for the water rights. I think the deep irony of that is, you know, ideally, it, this is a situation where government would come in, or, you know, and government's been the one running this thing for decades, right? But government would say, um, look, in the best interest of the entire population, we're going to set rates at this. We're going to have a water system that is sustainable. You can only take so much out because there's only so much available. We can measure the, the saltwater intrusion and the groundwater, you know, going down. We can see these things. Um, we can manage this really well. We've just failed for decades and decades and decades. We've failed at every system of government we put in place. Now you have a situation where 
the land in the desert is actually more valuable on paper for the paper rights that it gives someone to access water that's not even on their land. It's somewhere else, but you have this like paper right. And people are buying up these, these, these pieces of land, not because the land has any value. It doesn't, but because it, it gives you value to some piece of paper. There's a part of it that is like a tiny bit of like market feedback loop, but it is such a long distant and not efficient feedback loop that it actually just comes across as being like predatory. It, it, almost in the same way that like the system's about to go down. How do we as a hedge fund like get in there and get our, you know, we'll, we'll throw a few pennies in and hope that we can turn this into a dollar somewhere down the road if we can just wait it out long enough. And it's, it, it's, it's one of the more sickening aspects of the financial system. It is actually not uh, a market efficiency. It's a, it's a predatory behavior. Um, if you, we look back, you know, you said 20 years ago, I said 80 years ago. If we look back somewhere in that time frame, what really should have happened is that we should have had real markets pricing this stuff a long time ago. What we wound up with is incompetent government and predatory markets which, you know, if that's not an analogy for what we have kind of everywhere today, I don't know what is. I know people are going to listen to this and say, well, Chuck, how would you solve this? My, my response is like, there's no solution to this. This is a conundrum we've created where now, because we have not done the prudent things up to this point, a lot of people are going to be hurt in a lot of really tragic ways. And I think that's wrong. I, I'm not happy about that. But there's no way to solve this set of problems now. There's no solution to this. Right. It's a predicament and it's and a predicament. It has an outcome. So. It's a predicament that has an outcome. And at this point, we need to talk about how we manage outcomes. I, I think that it's, it's interesting because in the environmental planning movement, uh, there's a lot of fretting over climate change and climate change doing this and that. And like, this is a climate refuge city and this there's going to be dislocation here because of climate I think way before we get into the climate conversation, we're going to have massive dislocations because these systems are just going to break down in this way. If you can't get water in a desert, if they can't run the water system because they can't grow fast enough to, to solve all the problems they've created for themselves uh, and the water system falls apart, there's going to be a lot of dislocation out of the desert Southwest. Even if there is water available, if you don't have the capital and the capacity to provide it to people, AKA, you know, like they do in Jackson, Mississippi, they struggle. In Jackson, Mississippi, they have plenty of water. They can't get it out to people because their system is a Ponzi scheme and it broke early. In, in uh, Phoenix, the system is a Ponzi scheme and the growth has sustained that. But when that growth like stops, it doesn't matter if you do have some water you can get access to. You're not going to be able to pump it. You're not going to be able to make it work. You're not going to be able to hire the people. You're not going to be able to fix the pipes. You're not going to be able to fix the pumps. The system's going to break and you're going to have leaks in the desert and you're not going to be able to repair them all because it's so darn spread out. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's so inefficient already that even if they were able to sustain it for a little while, not having growth is is you know, exactly how you are unable to sustain an inefficient system. Yeah. And I, I, I know there's this, like, 
I was just going to say pipe dream. And I'm like, that's going to be a, that's a real pun. That's a good line. (laughs) There's this pipe dream that we're going to take water from the Great Lakes and somehow like pump it into the Western Basin and have it run down to Phoenix. Yeah. That will not happen because like. We not do that. (laughs) Well, you're, you're going to have like Norwegians and Swedes strapping themselves to pipes and blowing themselves up. I mean, it like literally, it would not happen. I mean, that would be something that would create like mild mannered Minnesotans to like go, go berserk. Here's what's going to happen. We're not going to run the great lakes down to the Southwest. What's going to happen is that the people who live in the desert Southwest are going to move to the Mississippi river basin. That that's, what's going to happen. And that's what dislocation is going to look like. You can become a real estate agent as, <laughs> and show people around Brainerd, Minnesota. So, I'm the, good I'm for the you. number one. I'm the number one <laughs> booster of this dysfunctional community. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to encourage all strong towns people to move here because then maybe we can, you know, get some shift. Make in that a strong town. Yeah, 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 yeah. That'd be really great. At the very least, I'd have some, you know, more people to sit on the porch and. and shoot the breeze with, which would be kind of fun. Yeah. And show up to meetings and, and yell into microphones. I'm trying to get you here. You don't do that yet. No, I don't do, I don't do that. I'm actually on the planning (laughs) commission. So I have to be like very respectful and you know, all that. But I, I, I'm reading the, uh, the Oppenheimer book. In fact, when we switch to the down zone, I'm going to talk about that. Um, but there's a quote in there. Einstein is quoted talking about Oppenheimer he says um, he loves a woman who can't love him back or won't love him back. And what he's talking about is Oppenheimer wants to serve the, the government, but the government is like red hunting, they're commie hunting, and they, they, they can't embrace Oppenheimer the way he would like to be of service. And, and so Einstein's insight is, you know, Oppie loves a woman who won't love him back. And what he should do is just give up on this woman and I, I read that line and I'm like, ooh, that, that struck a little close to home. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. so let's get into the down zone then. Sweet. Uh, so part of the show where we can share anything we've been doing, reading, watching, listening to. Uh, sounds like you've been reading a book. So you can go on uh, my Audible account and you can see that American Prometheus. <laughs> it's called American Prometheus and it is the... The book that the Oppenheimer movie is kind of centered on, I'm sure there have been other sources that have added to the movie, but that, that's kind of the book. If you, if you want the book that goes with the movie, that's it. Uh, the movie, I'm going to see it tonight. So my wife and I are going. I'm, I'm really, really excited. Christopher Nolan, I mean, I'm not like a connoisseur of directors, but I love every movie he's done. Like I've, I've watched all of them and I love, love, love them. And I'm really excited to see this one. And so, yeah, the book, I think going in, maybe I thought the book was about the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project is maybe 20%, 30% of the book. This is a real American tragedy story. This man's life, uh, he's a very interesting character. But then on top of that, this whole intertwined with being on the the cutting edge of uh, innovation and you really... Uh, a mental revolution in how we view the world, quantum mechanics and, and relativity physics, just in general, in the 20th century revolutionized how we look at everything. Uh, there hasn't been a revolution this big since, since Newton in his laws of mechanics. And, you know, Oppenheimer was right in the middle of that. And then right in the middle of applying it 
in this desperate attempt to, uh, you know, to beat the Germans to the bomb in the war. And then, you know, it's not used in, in Europe, it's used in Japan in controversial ways. And then from that point on, we enter the Red Scare, the, the hunt for communists in every nook and cranny, and just how that had an impact on, on people in the scientific community, you know, Oppenheimer being kind of the, the highest profile one. The book has been enthralling. I'm really excited to see Christopher Nolan's take on it because I suspect it will be equally or, or, or even more enthralling. Well, let me know. I'm planning to see this movie next week. So let me know if you think it's worth reading this book before watching the movie. I'm really excited to see the movie. I, I feel like the trailer doesn't give you a lot of like what will be happening in this story. And so I'm, I kind of like that. I'm excited to just kind of jump into it blind. But if you think it's worth reading the book beforehand, just to have more background on the character and, and this story, let me know because I'm, I'm debating, I'm debating whether or not it, it makes sense to kind of go in blind. Well, let me maybe give you something that might push you one way or the other. Again, like Cadillac Desert, it's not a, it's not a short one. <laughs> if you yeah. do it on, if you do it on audiobook, I think it's like eighteen or nineteen hours. It's twenty six hours. Twenty six hours. Okay, minutes. so maybe a little more. Yeah, Yikes. it's twenty six okay. hours. So you maybe. know, you yeah. You're going to watch a documentary on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I wish I could. I mean, you can do my approach, which is double speed. And I'm telling you, if double speed sounds crazy to you, um, do it for a little bit and you get very used to it. Just drink lots of coffee and listen to this at double speed in 13 hours. Double speed is, is where it's at. Well, I wanted to see the movie this weekend, but it was sold out everywhere. Uh, it seems to be pretty popular. So I uh, I don't think I'm going to go see Barbie, but, <laughs> but so, I don't know. <laughs> so when we're done here, I'm going to go home and then I'm going to meet my, pick up my daughter and we're going to meet my other daughter and my wife at the pizza place. We're going to get pizza. The two girls are going to Barbie and my wife and I are going to <laughs> Oppenheimer. Um, You'll have to compare notes after... Well, the, the sad thing is, is that my wife wanted to go to Barbie as well. But the kids, the girls were like, we're having a girls night. And my wife's like, can I come? And they're like, um, no. okay. And then she's like, fine, I'll go with dad. So I was the second uh, second choice for her. But Oppenheimer will probably be a better movie. Um, I plan to actually go to Barbie at some point with my kids because I have heard, <laughs> my kids say they want to take me. I mean, they're very, like, I have two daughters, they're very insistent, but they, they have heard, and I, I've kind of heard this too, that it's really, really good. Really? I mean, I love yeah. Ryan Gosling, but I, I love the actor that's in Oppenheimer as well, who, by yeah. the way, is in Peaky Blinders. Peaky I don't Blinders. know if you, did you watch Peaky Blinders? You know, I, I watched the first episode. You told me to watch it. I watched the first episode and then I looked and there's like, you know, 45 seasons or something. And I'm like, okay. I'm trying to finish this book. If I start a new, like, long-term, uh, you know, show, I'm going to, every night when I sit down to write, I'm going to be sucked into this show. So this is, Peaky Blinders is my reward for finishing my book. Okay. Yeah, because you really should, you really should watch it because it's it's historical fiction, but it goes through several 
uh, eras of that time that I think you'll think is really interesting, like the rise of the fascists towards the end. I think sure, sure. I think you'll like that. Well, I also should finish my book. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, you should also, yeah, you should finish your book yeah. um, and then watch all of Peaky Blinders. Well, I was just going to share. So I've been planning to go on a trip to do a solo trip to Europe. And I wow. decided to go to Barcelona, Spain. Congratulations. Yeah. Nice. So I I haven't decided when yet, but I have basically just been like putting together a map of locations on Google of places to go. And there's one place that I'm really excited about. It's this monastery that is a day trip and it's about an hour outside of the city and it's in the mountains. I'll have to just send it to you because I, yeah, yeah. it's like, I yeah. don't, I can't really figure out. Is it uh, a retreat kind of place or like a walking place or like, it's, um, it's you get there via gondola. It looks like, and it's called Santa Maria de Monastrat Abbey. And it is, I, I'll send you pictures. It looks absolutely insane. And the city of Barcelona looks absolutely insane. That I think I'll have plenty to do. I have not been. <laughs> I feel like it's a, it's, a, it's a gap. I have heard such amazing things. I, I have two books on Gaudi's architecture, which is uh, all throughout Barcelona. The books are amazing. I can't imagine what this looks like in real life. But yeah, you are, from all accounts, you're in for a treat. I'm really excited. I've just been staring at Google Street View. Uh, <laughs> as as a real places. planner would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it looks insane. It may be hard to get me on the plane coming back. So. <laughs> so Minikozi and I were together at um, Epcot Center last week. Uh, he came with me a couple of days on my little uh, retreat. Every place we went like the, uh, we, we, we went and ate in a couple of places and the waiter would come up and you, you always look because when you're there, they've got where they're from. And we went and ate at this Italian restaurant and the guy there is from this town in Italy. And so by the time he comes back to our table, we have his town called up. And um, I think he was all weirded out. Like, why are these people stalking my hometown? <laughs> and I heard him go talk to someone. I know a little bit of Italian. I heard him go talk to someone, uh, one of his coworkers. And they're like, they brought up my town. And they're like, so when he came back, I'm like, hey, we're planners. We're like urban planners. Like, we're, this is what we do. We're not stalking you. We're just like really right, interested exactly. in places. We just want to look so, at the street grid and yeah, study wanna, it. Yeah. I'm like, what is this building here? And he's like, oh, and it's got a good bar in the bottom. And he's like, tell us all about this. I'm like, cool. And like, I probably never go there, but you know, it's just, it's another place to scout out. So. Yeah. But when you're, when you're a planner and when you're somebody who likes to look at maps, it's like you kind of get to be there in spirit just by looking at maps all the time. It's like, I mean, it's not really going there, but I, I mean, yeah, it's almost a hobby at this point. It is at Google Maps. <laughs> it is. Whenever I meet someone, I like. There was this thing I heard before. It's like you know, city, uh, city people or upper middle class people will ask people like, "What do you do?" And small town people or or people who are a little bit poor on the spectrum ask like, "Who's your family?" And I, I realize that that's true because it, in my hometown you generally don't ask people what they do. You're like, who are you? Who are you related to? Do I know you're one like that? 
Um, except for me, I always ask people, where are you from? <laughs> where, where are you from? And then I'm like, okay, let me bring that up on a map and let me see your place. And do I know it? Have I been there? Uh, you know, tell me about your city. So yeah, maybe that's the urban planner version of that. It probably is because I'm the same way. I want to hear about where people are from and what it's like. And by the way, if anyone has Barcelona recommendations, I've, I've been trying to just like note on a map all like hostels that are good or little hidden areas. I found this one block that has like a public old water tower in the middle of the block that you can go to. And it's like a pool and it's just this like little inner block area with a water tower. So I want to find stuff like that, that I can go find Cool. once I actually get there. So when I was your age, and I did not say that in a condescending way, I said it in a jealous way. When I was your age, um, I was able to spend like six weeks by myself in Italy and um, ah, four weeks by myself and a couple of weeks with my wife at the end. And I had uh, a couple of these um, like hitchhikers books. They were books back then. Maybe that's all online now, but it was like, uh, you know, this is a, a cheap place you can stay. And this is like a really a place where you can get a really good meal that's affordable. Um, it was invaluable because I would just go to a place like not knowing anything about it and just get lost walking around. And I would use this book to find a place to crash and good places to eat. And it was, um, it was, I can't remember like the names of the books, but it was like hitchhikers, this or that, or how to do this on a budget. And, um, well, that's, they were that's essentially what helpful. I'm doing with Google maps because it's less heavy than books yeah, to yeah. carry around. But, but yeah, like just having some resources that can be on my phone. I don't know if I'll be there for six weeks. That would be uh, amazing. Dennis, if you're listening, I, <laughs> like to go to Barcelona for well, mine months. was um mine was a rotary trip uh rotary has this like professional exchange program huh. and I got sent over to Italy and then the trip fell apart like the Italians in in stereotypical Italian way were not at all prepared for us had no idea we were coming but we had entertained That's their perfect. team oh yeah <laughs> we had brought their team over and like the doctor like spent six weeks working you know, at hospitals, like seeing how we do things. The teacher was like brought to different schools around the whole district. Yeah. yeah. So we went over there and they're like, yeah, we didn't know you were even coming. And I'm like, seriously? <laughs> so they finally, we recalled the team and I signed a waiver and stayed because I had the six weeks off from, from work mm -hmm. uh, that I had been planning well. this trip. Yeah. And it was, it was, a, it was life changing. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm really sure was. it was. Yeah, no, I've heard I, great things about about just the idea of going somewhere like alone and just just taking your own time and going to where you want to go and just kind of meeting people, talking to other people who are traveling. I'm excited. Yeah, it is a gift that I am grateful for. You know, I, it, there are so many stories that come out of that, so many life-changing things that come out of that experience. And it's one of the things that with my kids, I feel lucky, you know, my family would never have done that or could never have done that. And I'm in this position where I'm like, yeah, you need to take, you take a couple months and just go get lost. Yeah. Go that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that's all I've got. Anything else? I think that's it. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm excited. I might not be able to do next week because we'll be in San Diego, but 
Oh yeah, um, that's right. Let's see if well, we can make it work anyway. We, maybe we can do it on Thursday or something. Yeah, do a group call. <laughs> do a group call. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, it would be kind of fun. Might be really chaotic for the person listening to this, but. <laughs> Thank you, Abby. <laughs> All right. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upsound. Thanks, Chuck. Take care.